Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much uh, for this, Lord, that uh, in the midst of all this craziness, Lord, that we have still this means of being able to uh, encourage one another and to be able to equip one another and to just be able to share your word. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that uh, I would decrease and that you would increase and uh, that today would just be a, a time that we can reflect on you. Um, as we continue uh, in the book of Judges. And God, we just love you and uh, we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, we're going to be continuing, like I said, in the book of Judges. Uh, I'll be preaching today out of Judges 10, uh, 10 6 to approximately chapter, a little bit before chapter 12. Now, um, just to recap a little bit, if there's anything that uh, we've grasped in this series is that God is continuously using and rising up people. And I love how God is repeatedly calling out the outcast and the underdog. So we see that in the beginning of Judges when our series kind of started, we, we went through Othniel uh, and Othniel, he was one of the judges. He was a younger brother, actually, and God chose him. Uh, we see Deborah, uh, God used a woman which was culturally ostracized. And she was used to rally and remind Barak uh, to fulfill what God ha had commanded him to do in Judges 4.6. And then we see again, a little bit further on in Judges 4.21, we see Jael and uh, God uses this woman to assassinate Commander Sisera by driving a tent peg in his temple. Um, and then again, we see a little bit later on in Judges 6, we see God call Gideon. And Gideon replies to the Lord when he calls him out, says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And then once again, um, last week with Abimelech, we learn in Judges 9.53 that an unnamed woman throws an an upper uh, millstone on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull. So constantly we're seeing um, uh, this trend of God using the weak, the unpopular, the uneducated, the untrained to fulfill his sovereign plan. And that's throughout the pages of scripture. We see that all the time uh, with King David um, and so on. And as Tim reminded us a few weeks ago, that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in weakness. And we, we read that in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That all these individuals, though they played a vital part in the story, everything points to the one true hero, the Lord God. Okay, so with uh, now as we move on to chapter 10 of Judges, we see like time and time again in the Old Testament, Verse six, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, sorry, I'm just getting used to the screen here. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. 
just give me one moment here. I've kind of been, there we go. All right, so um, in this text here, we see seven false and foreign gods that are mentioned. Now, biblical numerology plays an important role in scripture. Numbers such as three, six, seven, 40, 1,000, all have significant meaning, and the author is trying to draw our attention to that. So the number seven in the Bible, normally uh, it signifies completion. So here in this text, Israel has fully and completely abandoned Yahweh. So those were the seven gods, different uh, false gods that we, uh, that we read. And again, just signifying complete abandonment of Yahweh. So as a result, in verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. All right. And now on the screen, you'll see uh, Judges 10.10. Now, while Israel cries out to the Lord in verse 10, they, they do acknowledge their sin. And this is what they say. They say, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Now, if you remember the significance of numbers, here again, we see God list seven oppressors of Israel, symbolizing, again, a complete saving protection of God's people. Again, Biblical numerology, we got to take all that, always factor that into there. So Israel, Israel having been saved time and time again, have shown little to no gratitude. God says, I will save you no more, which is not to be understood as absolutely. Since after this, he does deliver them, but he means conditionally unless they repented of their idolatries and forsook them. This is said to bring them to a sense of their own depravity and their own sin. Now we see in, in, in verse 14, God kind of facetiously responds and he says, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. L let them save you in your time of distress. Now see, Israel's confession, it, it, it appeared hollow and phony and genuine and not genuine, as we see in the Lord's response. Now, as a, as, a, as a dad of three, I've had my share of sit downs to discipline my children. And I actually had to discipline one of my kids about something that they were disciplined the day before for. Now, my kid was quick to apologize and say sorry. But what I needed them to hear 
is that true repentance is not only for sin, but from the sin. I, I didn't want to just hear, sorry, daddy. I, I didn't want to just see lip service. I wanted to see a heart change. And our Heavenly Father also, also sees us when we are not truly repentant and our motives are impure. Now, Israel had become a polytheistic people with Yahweh in their back pocket. God sees into their heart and the very intentions of their hearts. And, and that reminds me of, of, of Matthew 15, 8, where he says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now we move on to verse 15. You should have that on your screen. Israel responds. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So as an evidence of the sincerity of their sorrow and that they did not only confess their sin, but they actually, they forsook them. And for the present time, a thorough reformation took place and they served the Lord only. And upon their repentance and reformation, the Lord turns away his anger and he has compassion on them and on their miseries. Now, with all that in mind, that kind of leads us into a new chapter and into a new judge. And chapter 11 begins with the description and background of a, of a, of a man named Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was a mighty warrior, very much like, uh, like Gideon, like we saw uh, earlier on. And uh, his father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Now, we learned that in verse 1 uh, of, of this chapter. In verse 2, as we move on, Jephthah, the illegitimate son, is driven out by his half-brothers. Uh, it's said that he might have even been uh, very young when this happened, that they drove him out. And they did it for a couple of different reasons. One was they didn't share the same mother. And uh, they probably looked down on her because uh, she was a prostitute. Uh, and also, uh, the, the, the brothers, they didn't want to share any of the family inheritance with him. So they felt like the best would be to just kind of cast him away, uh, you know, shoo him off and, and keep it to themselves. So Jephthah flees to Tob, where he actually becomes famous for leading a band of outlaws and uh, just attacking and causing a lot of trouble for the Ammonites and pagan people in that area. And he basically, he became like an Old Testament Jack Sparrow, like a kind of pirate. And uh, Jephthah here at this point, he, he, he's earned a title to be, you know, being a type of crime boss, like a type of godfather. Okay. And, um, and like we've seen time and time again in the Old Testament, we see these waves of peace and war. And verse four, uh, verse four tells us, again, we see the Ammonites wage war against Israel. And the people and the elders of Gilead begin to seek out their next Gideon and who's going to step up to the plate. Verses eight says, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, 
That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, again, there, there's definitely something significant about Mizpah, okay, the, this location itself. Basically, Mizpah means uh, watch post or watchtower or lookout, or it can be also interpreted as may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. Uh, now, Mizpah was a very significant place where they would make covenants and promises, and we see some of the famous ones. We find them in uh, Genesis 31, 44, basically when Laban and Jacob covenant to keep peace and reconcile their differences. Uh, we see also the Samuel, pro uh, the, 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 the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 7, 6. Also, he gathers Israel uh, at Mizpah to turn away from their idols, to repent and to return to the Lord. Um, now, Jephthah, he had trust issues. Uh, right. Like, I mean, the same people basically cast them off. Now they're 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 offering to be head and so forth. So he wanted to make this official. So he did it at Mizpah. There was something very significant about promises and covenants. And he knew that they couldn't turn away from this. There was something very special about this location. So, again, we see in Judges 1110, the elders make a covenant with Jephthah to be leader and head of Gilead. So moving forward. Jephthah agrees to take on this mission. Now, initially, Jephthah decides to do this in a diplomatic fashion. He's not out there right away to start, you know, war and slaughtering people. First, he starts off very diplomatically and he goes to the king of the Ammonites. And he basically says, listen, um, he goes through a history lesson. He goes through geography lessons. He goes through uh, his history with slavery in Egypt. He goes through promises and covenants and land and detours. So basically, he just tells them that, uh, you know, um, my people were, um, there was an exodus, they left Egypt, they were promised certain lands, um, they went through the desert, uh, they were bl blocked by different, uh, by different kings, they weren't able to access certain regions, so they couldn't access the land that was promised to them. So he kind of goes through this whole spiel here about what is owed to the people of Israel. But the king of the Ammonites does not listen to the words of Jephthah. So this ends up going to war. Um, you'll find on your screen right now, verses 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites and Jephthah made a vow. Listen to this. He made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up 
for a burnt offering. So we see here in verse 29, uh, the spirit of the Lord falls upon Jephthah. And we see this uh, throughout Judges where same thing happens to Othniel. Uh, we see the spirit of the Lord fall on Gideon right before battle, before he blows the horn. Uh, we see every time that Samson ends up going, uh, you know, Hulk on everybody and he starts breaking uh, the, the bonds and lifting doors where the spirit of, uh, of the Lord falls on him. Same thing. So here the spirit of the Lord falls on Jephthah to fulfill his mission. He's basically guaranteed the victory. Yet Jephthah makes a tragic vow that leads to his demise. He offers to sacrifice the first thing to leave his house uh, once he returns as a triumphant judge. He's adopted uh, a type of works righteousness understanding of God's character. Like, like as if he's paying off a pagan God for the victory. The Lord gives him total victory. He returns a conquering hero before being met by the very last person he hoped for, his one and only child, a daughter. Now, now let, let's pause for a second here. Commentators have studied these passages and it is strongly believed that Jephthah, with his semi-heathen and broken parentage or lineage, had offered the Lord a human sacrifice. Now, animals normally didn't stay in the home. So the chances of an animal coming out to greet him, they, they were very slim. And we see in verses 34 that Jephthah is welcomed by his daughter instead of an animal. Or I'm assuming he was hoping that it would be a servant that would greet him. The tragedy we see here is not only the taking and sacrifice of an innocent life, but complete utter disobedience and rebellion to the law. And Deuteronomy 8.10, if he would have known the law, he would have known that it states, there shall be found among you, uh, I'm sorry, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. And then if we move on a couple chapters again, making mention to human sacrifices, makes mention to that, that it's an abomination, that it's detestable to the Lord. Yet this is what Jephthah's offering God. Why does Jephthah go through with such a wicked vow? Jephthah seemed to have no concept of God's grace. God is being viewed as any other pagan God whose favor can be earned by following through with heinous vows and wicked rituals. Instead of confessing and repenting and trusting the Lord, he goes through with this act for fear that God would strike him down. So what, what can we draw from this? What can we draw for right now from, the, the, you know, reading the, the life of Jephthah, what he went through? And I think there's three points that we can kind of, uh, that we can see. Number one, that we would be a people that turn from our sin. 
just as idol worship keeps enslaving the people of Israel, we need to be cautious of the sin that entangles us. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us. You know, many, many times we, we kind of picture idolatry as worship of some kind of a wooden or golden image. But our idols so many times are in plain sight. The closest to us, our devices, our access to Netflix, Amazon, our time, our priorities. Idolatry is our misplaced affections towards the created and not the creator. But we have this hope in 1 John 1, 9 that says and reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The people of Israel continuously miss the mark. But one thing we can draw from the text is that they repented, they forsook their sins, and reformed. Draws us to point number two, that we would be a people of the word. Tim Keller writes this also, you'll see this on the screen. Tim Keller writes, we are mostly, we are mostly far more affected by our culture than by the Bible. And we are far more affected by our culture than we think. You see, Jephthah was so blinded by his sin and surroundings that he was completely oblivious that the very vow he was making was an abomination to the Lord. Jephthah, who was immersed in pagan culture, rituals, customs, practices, that human sacrifice came so very natural to him. Jephthah deliberately ignored the scriptures and the sacredness of human life. Today, culture preach many false doctrines that are the furthest thing from scripture or the truth. Church, we need to be watchful. Today, topics that drive our culture normally revolve around money, sex, love, and power. But we have the answers to these. And, and my exhortation to you would be that in whatever situation or topic, you would look at it in the light of scripture. The Bible teaches us about money, how to be good stewards uh, of our finances, how to be a giving people, because we've been given so much that when we look at sex, that we can identify God's intention and beauty in that, in genders, in roles, and in marriage. And then when we peer into loving neighbor, well, we can combat issues such as abortion or racism. That, that if we truly loved as Christ loved his church, that there would be a radical change. You know, I wanted to share a list of few catchy buzz phrases that seem to pass as scripture in culture. And we hear them all the time. And maybe you've heard them. And 
maybe you've even actually quoted them. Let me, let me read you off some of them. This is my, my, my favorite. God helps those that help themselves. That one's my absolute favorite. Um, you'll find it nowhere in the Bible, that's for sure. Um, and uh, th- this comes from a spirit of self-dependency and self-sufficiency, what I can do, what I can do for myself. And it's a type of, of works righteousness, nothing to do with grace. Another one that we hear often, God will not give you more than you can handle. That's a good one. I've actually, uh, Pastor Dustin's rebuked me one time for that one because I I took it out of context. So I thank him for that one. And um, yeah, for this one, it comes straight from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This has to do with temptation, right? I mean, with, with, with that in mind, I mean, if we look at the story of Job, I mean, Job was, he was given a lot, right? He went through a lot. Another good one. All things work together for good. Again, right out of the pages of scripture. However, you're missing a half of that, poor, that, 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 that scripture verse where basically it says all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? This doesn't apply to every single person. God is working things out, but here he's talking about the redeemed. Another one that's popular, God works in mysterious ways. Sure, yeah, definitely. (laughs) But again, you won't find it in the Bible. Or this one, cleanliness is next to godliness. The Old Testament contains lots of rules about ritual cleanliness, but again, you won't find this in the Bible. Another one that's popular, this too shall pass. Or money is the root of all evil. Again, there's nothing wrong with money. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? So we take, you know, we make money the problem here, but it's the love of money. It's when money becomes our idol, right? And one last one here, spare the rod, spoil the child. I was convinced that this was in the Bible at one point because people used to say it all the time. And I was just like, but wait a minute. But then when you do a search, you don't find it anywhere, but it's based on a proverb. But if I read you the proverb, it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him just a little bit different and 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 this this uh this saying it wasn't even written by a theologian it was actually written by a a 17th century british poet so we got to be careful what we interpret a scripture what culture kind of tells us right so we fall short at times and it is vital that we are grounded in god's word that we would not be a people lacking in knowledge And as Hosea says in chapter four, six, again, you'll have that on the screen. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. That the word of God would be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, as it says in Psalm 119, 105. Now, how can we apply this? Um, Study, read, pray, 
you know, with, with Bible reading plans in progress right now, it, it becomes easy to just read through your daily chapters, you know, kind of get that done and get that check mark. But sometimes we can avoid really savoring the word. And what I would suggest is that you would feast on the word as if it was fine dining. Enjoy every mor morsel as you chew it and as you digest it slowly. The final point that we can, we can grasp from, from Jephthah's story, that we would be a people that are distinct, not a people of compromise, but set apart and holy. Again, a slide for Deuteronomy 4.2, you'll see it on the screen in the NLT, it says, you have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you from all nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. And also we're reminded, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to be distinct because since you've been raised from the dead with Christ, aim at what is in heaven, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Think about the things in heaven, not the things on earth. Your old sinful self has died and your new life is kept with Christ in God. Again, that's in Colossians 3, 1 to 3. And then one more here um, in Matthew 5, where, where Christ uh, instructs us in the Beatitudes. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, that we would be a light, that we would be a distinct people, that we would be consecrated, that we would be a people of truth, and that all would see Christ in us. You know, there was uh, an interview between Billy Graham and an FBI agent. And an FBI agent was asked how the agency spots counterfeit money. And his answer was surprising and inspiring. And he said, we only study the real thing. He went on to say, we become so focused on each authentic mark that we can spot a counterfeit instantly. Jesus is our authentic mark. He is the standard. And the more we abide in him and the more we abide in his word, then we can discern the counterfeit. Strive for holiness and being set apart for him. First Peter 1 Peter 1.16 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So Jesus said to them, also we see this in John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. 
that when people see us, that they would see Christ in our lives. Now, just to to wrap this up, my prayer would be uh, this in three points. Live authentic lives of genuine repentance. A heart postured to go to the one, to the one and only one that can truly forgive. Number two, be committed to his word. That you're able to distinguish between truth and, and the lies that the teleprompter of life tells us. And the last one would be not to be a people of compromise, but to be set apart and to be holy. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, uh, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that, um, that you are a good God, that you are a merciful God, that you are a God that hears our prayers uh, and that you are just. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would always remind us uh, to come to you in repentance, that you would always uh, remind us to rely on your word and that that word would change us and that we would be different and set apart and holy for your name. And we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.